Nepal is in the midst of a civil war. So, you know, we're like trying to get to our appointments and, you know, flaming bricks are flying over your head and you're like trying to bring home this little boy and thinking, I wish I was back on Everest. Like climbing mountains is so much easier than what I'm trying to do here. Welcome to Adoption Now, sharing real stories of the joys and challenges of adoption. Now here's the host of Adoption Now, April Fallon. Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today, we are so honored to have a very inspirational guest. Eric Weinmayer is one of the most celebrated and accomplished athletes in the world. He is the first blind man to climb Mount Everest. He has climbed the seven summits on each of the seven continents, and he kayaked the entire 277 miles of the Grand Canyon on the Colorado River. It's amazing. He's amazing. And what I love about Eric is that he's done all of that, and he found adoption to be one of the most challenging experiences in his life. I found out all about his experience by reading his latest book, no barriers. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. That is so amazing that you have done all these things. It's been a fun life. I was a teacher for six years out of college and uh, I love that, but I just, you know, wanted to make this opportunity to make a life in the mountains. And I've been doing that for 20 years. I guess it's not a something a venture capitalist would have banked on, but I've been making it work and uh, have a beautiful family and live here in Colorado. So. I love this book so much. Now, you start off by telling your story about how you went blind. You were not born blind, correct? No, I went blind from a really rare disease. It's like in the book, I compared it to winning the lottery, but the exact opposite. So super rare, no cure. They uh, diagnosed me with this retinal disease. They said, by the time you're a teenager, you're going to be totally blind and there's nothing we can do. And so in ninth grade, is that when it happened? Yeah, it happened about, you know, blindness is like a varying degree of loss, you know, but I lost the last traces of vision about a week before my freshman year in high school. So I walked into freshman year totally blind and pretty scared and sort of frustrated too. The way that you write the book, it's so amazing. I mean, you're right in the story and the chapters, particularly of adoption, really spoke to me just because it is really challenging. So you're reading about your life and all these challenges that you have overcome. And then you get to this part of your life where you and your wife, who is also adopted, decide to adopt this little boy. And I love in your book where you say that throughout the summer, now you're trying to bring this little guy home. You found yourself in deep thought. If a soldier could lead his platoon into battle with a prosthetic leg, if a quadriplegic could learn to surf, if blind kids could paint a schoolhouse, then why couldn't we figure out a way to bring this little boy home? And so many of us as adoptive parents feel like that. You know, we've done so many other things in life that other people would say that's so difficult. And yet here we are in adoption and you can't accomplish it. You can't achieve it because it's not in your control. And so the way you wrote that, I was just as a mom, adoptive mom, I'm like, that's exactly how so many of us feel. And so let's just back up the story. You've been doing all these wild, crazy things, overcoming all these obstacles. You've written all these books. And then you're in Nepal. And what happens? 
I mean, yeah, there's so much to unpack there. You know, you're exactly right. I mean, I started this organization called No Barriers. We work with thousands of people with challenges from injured veterans to people with disabilities to people with trauma. Then, you know, I've climbed Everest and I have training to kayak the Grand Canyon. And then in the streets of Nepal, trying to bring home this little boy and thinking, I wish I was back on Everest. Like this, you know, climbing mountains is so much easier than what I'm trying to do here. And so uh, I wanted to bring that piece into the book because, you know, it'd be a incomplete book if you're just writing about your adventures and so forth. I mean, that's a part of life. That's a thread that runs through your life. But your family is the most important piece. And so trying to bring this little guy home at five years old was about the biggest no barriers challenge I've ever faced in my life, bigger than mountains and rivers. I completely agree. I was laughing in these chapters. I was crying in these chapters. And so many of us have these experiences where it's just wild and crazy with the paperwork and you're just fighting so hard to bring your child home. And I like how you parallel summoning a mountain to summoning things in your life, the journey that you're on and bringing home this child was really something that you were trying to achieve. And so in that process, let's just talk about what you went through not having any control and when you brought him home. I think a lot of that, a lot of the book and a lot of the message is about powerlessness versus empowering yourself. And, you know, when you go down a river as a blind person, you know, there's certain things in a river that, you know, you try to make moves, you try to control the scene and get in position, but you also are having to let go because there's this massive force, this massive, powerful river affecting you and you can't control it. So part of it, learning to let go. Part of going blind was learning what I could influence and what I had to let go of. And then, you know, part of mountain climbing, you get in position, you get all ready for the summit and, you know, you do everything possible. And then, you know, it's a little bit up to fate. And that's the way adoption was, but even amplified because uh, there was so much that you felt helpless. Like it was forces bigger than you that you couldn't necessarily wrangle or control in any way. And you were trying to figure out how to ride those forces sort of like a river. You know, I use that all the time, riding a horse. I say you start in the adoption process and you're just kind of galloping along. But by the time it's over, you've been bucked off and you are dragging across the ground and hoping to live through it. Because there are those moments where you think, are we really going to get this child? I mean, how can it be so difficult? The child needs parents and we're parents. Why can't we just come together and go on your way and really finish this process? And you're kind of in that waiting period. Now, in your story, you talk about choosing Nepal and you also talk about you had an agency that was not doing the right thing, correct? You had a social worker in there that was not great. Well, the social worker was really good, you know, because they hired by the organization, by the domestic agency that we had to work through. But the agency itself, yeah, it turns out when we're in Nepal and we're in a desperate need of, you know, papers haven't arrived to the embassy and we're sitting there and, you know, you really feel vulnerable as a parent. And we reached out to the agency and noticed that we weren't really getting much response and then we read on the internet uh, that uh, they were using funds from one 
nonprofit to fund another essentially like kind of a Ponzi scheme. And we were one of the victims. And now we're sitting in Nepal, like this agency, the director is about to go to jail. And we're like, oh my God, you know, you try to sift through what you think is a shifty process and environment in Nepal, you know, with all the ministries and all the, you know, from an American standard, all the crazy things that you're having to go through and you're not sure who you can trust. And then it turns out that the agency that you thought was like pretty solid in the U.S., that's the biggest crook. So, yeah, we everything got turned on its head. And that's what I meant, you know, partly um, when I was talking about mountain climbing being pretty simple, you know, one foot in front of the next until you reach the summit. But no, this was a complicated, circling, illogical kind of process. Uh, not only was that happening, all that cr- stuff going on, but Nepal was in the midst of a civil war. So, you know, we're like trying to get to our appointments and, you know, flaming bricks are flying over your head and you're like, excuse me, you know, I got to get to the embassy. That is just crazy. I, I mean, the way you write as well, I was right there with you guys. I mean, we were running down the streets together. That's how good you write. And thinking about what your wife went through and now you had a biological daughter at the time. How old was she? She was uh, about seven. This took two years for us, almost two years. So she started out at five and we brought him home at seven. How come you chose Nepal? Well, you know, we could have chosen anywhere. And I would have eventually if Nepal hadn't worked out. But because it's not necessarily where you adopt from. As I wrote about in the book, you're picking like a speck of sand on a sort of giant beach. And, you know, you see a little picture. It's a grubby picture. My wife explained it to me. A little boy with dirty feet, kind of not staring at the camera not smiling. And you're like, this boy is my son. And so, you know, it could have been anywhere, but we thought Nepal was a really special place for me. The people really inspire me. You know, when I climbed Everest, I had these support team of Sherpas and, you know, those guys lay it out there for you. And near the top of Everest, if you as a Westerner, like fall over and die or get hurt, they're there with you. They're going to stay with you. They're probably going to die with you. It's, they link their faith to you. And it's such a powerful experience that for me, I came down and I said, this is a country that makes me feel hopeful, that makes me trust that the world's problems can be solved. And so it was a natural starting place for me. I like how you talk about pushing forward and you talk about what it was in you that made you decide to go forward with adoption. Yes, your wife was adopted. Yes, there were all these other factors your brother had just passed away. And so you were kind of, it sounds like in the book, really trying to reconcile what was going on at that time. And, and you said, I think pushing forward can feel like moving through a war zone. There are so many things that want to knock you down and kill hope. There's a lot of wreckage and a lot of pain along the way. So why not take those burned out craters and grow love in their place? And I think that is so beautiful, Eric, because... So many of us adoptive parents feel like we've been through it. And so we could sit and cry about it or we could do something and we could give hope and a future to children and we could make something good out of something that's so bad. How did you come to that place? Well, it's a principle that I've tried to live by in my life. And I think the first time I experienced this was when I was going blind watching this guy, Terry Fox. Back in the 80s, he had lost a leg to cancer and he was running across Canada. And I thought, wait a second, a guy just lost his leg to cancer and he makes a decision to run across Canada thousands of miles 
Like that is not the logical decision somebody in his situation should make. And it's an element that I think about a lot. I call it alchemy, you know, this idea of taking what life throws at you and turning it into gold. And so, yeah, my brother had died. Uh, it was a heart attack brought on by, you know, alcoholism. And, you know, we tried to save this guy. And we just, a lot of things happened where he's bigger than me. I just couldn't, couldn't save this guy. And we, it was a loss to the world. And so you're sitting there with this loss and you're thinking, I'm not going to sit here and feel lost and helpless and feel trauma. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to step forward and I'm going to bring something that's going to bring joy and happiness and love and chaos into my family. Life isn't really meant to be neat and orderly. It's meant to be chaotic and joyful and messy and, you know, every now and then triumphant. So we made this decision to bring this little guy into our life. And we thought, you know, a lot of people adopt kids in diapers and that's perfectly great, but we just thought we'd pick a little bit of an older kid because as you know, as a kid gets older, his chances of getting adopted are less and less. So, mm -hmm. you know, the orphanage over in Nepal sent us this photo, a little gubby photo. My wife looks at it and says, done. And some things are scientific in your life, you know, and you're careful and engineering and some things, as I said, are the opposite. And that's the way adoption is. <laughs> so you met him first, correct? No, I mean, no, the, we thought about Nepal. This agency said we work with a orphanage in Nepal. I'd visited a lot of orphanages in Nepal, and, you know, there's thousands and thousands of kids that are sitting there. You know, my friends described these glassy-eyed stairs, you know, these thousand-yard stairs. You know, so you just want to make some kind of little tiny impact, you know. So they had this orphanage, and so they showed us a picture. That's the way it all starts. They say, oh, you're looking for a kid who's around five. Here's a picture of a kid who's really awesome. And so there's no real basis of like, you know, let's see his IQ and does he meet, you know, 10 different requirements? No, my wife sees the picture of him and you choose. Right. If you're going to say yes, or you're going to say no, but you met him physically before your wife did. Yeah. So then you have to go over for a visit and you have to sign a bunch of papers and get the whole process started. And uh, my daughter was in kindergarten at the time and hard to just leave for a month. So I had wanted to go climb this huge ice face in Nepal anyway. So I kind of used that as my excuse, like, well, okay, I'm going to go over there. I'm going to sign all the papers and then I'm going to go up into the Himalaya and climb this big face. And so that's what we did. And we got to meet him and he got to come to my hotel room and we hung out for a few days and uh, he had been on like a vegetarian diet. So I fed him some pizza, <laughs> which might have, might or might have not been a good idea. Um, <laughs> But uh, he started eating the pizza, and then he started eating the French fries off our plates, and then the uh, he was like a dog that couldn't stop eating. He started drinking the ketchups out of the little uh, cups on the table, and then we went up to my room, and there's a basket full of fruit, and he started eating all the fruit. I had to like pull it away eventually and put it on a top shelf, and then this little tiny guy climbs all the way like a monkey to the top shelf and gets the basket. I mean, I'm sure every adoptive parent can relate to this, but yeah, he was pretty hungry. Did he keep all that food down? <laughs> well, I don't know if I should get into this, but uh, no, uh, he, he kept it down, but then he had to go to the bathroom and I'm like, oh, I got this five-year-old kid. And in Nepal, the kids in the orphanage, there's not toilet paper. They kind of squat over the hole or the toilet. Mm -hmm. And so I have this little boy like squatting up on the toilet and he's never used toilet paper in his life. So I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. I first uh, <laughs> lesson in being a dad, I guess, here. So uh, I did what I had to do. I mean, 
that seems so incredible because you're blind. How are you able to adjust? How is he adjusting to you? Had he ever seen someone that was blind? You wonder that, you know, you just wonder that at five years old, what he's is processing, what he's conceptualizing there, you know, whether he knows I'm blind or not. I know that when I showed up at the orphanage, he played with my long white cane, which uh, a blind person uses, and he played with my talking watch. You know, he was just really, really, really curious. And I picked him up on my shoulders and started walking around with him. And so I don't think he knew that I was blind. I think he's just too young to really understand that, you know, what that all meant. Uh, I just probably thought I was this guy with this weird stick in his hand. But I did worry, you know, like, as a blind guy, how I was going to, like, play catch with him and all the things. Like, my daughter, Emma, she was pretty manageable. You know, I put, like, uh, you know, shoes on her when she was little that squeaked a little bit. And we had a rule, like, when I call her voice, she has to call back. But a crazy, wild little boy from Nepal... I remember, like, on the taxi ride home to the hotel one night, he'd never been in a seatbelt. I had to, like, wrestle him into the seatbelt. He was, like, running back and forth trying to stick his head out the window. And, you know, it was pretty wild. So I knew this was going to be a different circumstance, and it was going to be a big challenge for me as a blind person. And I had to reckon with that for sure internally. You know, I would have these sort of visionary conversations with my older brother, Mark, who had passed away, and he'd be like, suck it up. You know what I mean? are you going to do this or not? And I thought, yeah, I'm going to do this. Did you love him right away? Yeah, for sure. You know, he just, he had so much fire and energy, you know, like he learned to ride a bike right away. And then he learned, you know, Hey, I don't want training wheels. Like two days into riding this bike, he's like, get those training wheels off. He couldn't speak English. So he's just pointing at the wheels. Like, no, get rid of those things. <laughs> and so we ran up and down the street. It was in the winter in Colorado. And uh, he learned to ride his bike like a, I called him the crazy Nepali taxi driver because uh, he was a little out of control. And then there were some challenges too, you know, because, you know, he was a kid who was in this orphanage and we didn't know exactly his story. And there was some sort of learned helplessness as well. You know, like he had a big scar on his chin from, getting bit by a dog. The orphanage director said he never really cried. And it's, it made sense to us, you know, mm-hmm. like why would you develop this mechanism of crying when there's nobody really there that's going to run to your aid? So he had some things that like when he came home, like he'd spill a glass of milk and he would just sit there looking at it as it spread across the floor. Like he didn't know how to react in certain situations. And so we had to struggle through a lot of that as well as a new family. Right, especially for keeping him safe. If that mechanism yeah, I mean, there was to a stop... dog that kind of launched at him one time uh, in our neighborhood, and he just sort of stood there, like sort of paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was so fascinating because we all have a bit of that, right? We all have a bit of that. You know, life is trauma, right? And so I've had some of that. You know, I've worked with veterans. We work with hundreds of veterans a year at No Barriers, and they're folks with PTSD. You know, they're folks who have had traumatic experiences and that trauma kind of gets into their brain sort of like a vibration that runs and and affects their mood and their approach to life. And so he had some of that. So I wasn't expecting that a little boy coming home at five years old would have some of those same qualities and some of those same challenges as a lot of the folks at No Barriers that we'd worked with over the years. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So you came back and then you guys got the call to go back over there. And this time you took your wife and your daughter. And one of the things I love is the first time that Ellie sees him. And you said that when she saw him, she said, he's just as vulnerable as a newborn. Yeah. It was backwards though, you know, because at five years old, this little boy who had had so much of a life and had so much history and background and she didn't know any of that. And she was connecting with this little boy in this special way, like you would a baby. But at the same time, he was five years old and he was like, he's like, I don't know who you are, you know, and I've had a lot of experience and she felt pretty scared because, you know, she's like, I have a lot of catching up to do like with Emma. Like, I mean, we taught her nursery rhymes and sang songs and, oh my gosh, we have to bond and integrate you into our family and sort of mingle our experiences until we have this sort of shared experience. And it definitely was a very um, vulnerable feeling. She wanted to take this boy in her arms and hold him. But, you know, again, he's just looking at her like, I don't know you. And I'm five years old. I've, I've lived a lot. Right. Like he didn't jump in her arms and say, hi, mom. You know, no, that's what people no. imagine would happen, but it's not quite like that. In fact, one time on my second trip back to Nepal, I came to the orphanage and I ran there. I was really excited with my friend and, and all the kids are singing and Arjun comes running out and sprinting towards me, smiling and laughing. And I'm like down on my knee, just like ready to like take him in my arms. And he runs by me and I feel like something weird. And it, it, he had reached into my pocket and stole my money and just <laughs> kept running. I was like, yeah, daddy's a little pickpocket. Wow. Yeah. yeah a little bit so, different than you, know, you imagine it, huh? <laughs> exactly. And so that's the thing. I mean, I think sometimes as parents, you got to have really good expectations because it's not going to wind up being exactly the way you envisioned it in your pretty little thoughts. Right. Eric, that is so true. We have to take a break. Stay tuned as we talk more to Eric Weinmayer, who wrote the book, No Barriers. You're listening to Adoption Now. We'll be right back. Hi, this is April Fallon, the host of Adoption Now, telling your adoption story. We're going through some changes at Adoption Now. We're working on a new website and changing around our podcast just a bit. We love all of your feedback, ideas for shows, and applications to be on the show. Email us anytime at april at adoption-now.com. We would love for you to subscribe to Adoption Now podcast by clicking on the subscribe button on iTunes. Then you'll get a new story as soon as the podcast is released. Again, thank you for listening to Adoption Now. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. Today, we're talking to Eric Weinmayer. He wrote the book, No Barriers. He is amazing. I mean, this book, it captures really the heart of adoption. It captures the heart of an athlete. It really talks about overcoming challenges and how to position yourself to summit your mountain, whatever your mountain is. And so, so many of us are going through the adoption journey and, and we have to get to the top. And we have to bring those children home. And even after you bring home your child, you're still climbing another mountain. I mean, things just kind of keep going on. And I think you're so down to earth, Eric. It's great talking to you. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's, you know, part of the reason for writing this book was to share our experiences, you know, to share that, you know, blind climber climbing mountains and kayaking rivers isn't so different from a person struggling through growing their pursuits and growing their family. And, you know, my experience with adoption, I feel like was probably 
in so many ways commingled with a lot of other people's experiences. So you write a book to sort of bring your experiences together and lean in with the readers that are connecting to that story. So it's like really fun talking about these great experiences with Arjun. I love that you go to the country. You guys are running around. Nothing's making sense. You're trying to get this paperwork done. You find out that your American agency is not honest. You're trying to figure that out. And you go and you get this TB test done, right? You have to get him to pass all this stuff. Your wife says, is it always like this? And you said, totally, no problem. Funniest thing, I was laughing so hard because, so true, totally, just keep going. No problem. I mean, really thinking back when you're writing this book, weren't you like, I can't believe we went through that? Yeah, I mean, the process that you go through, I mean, there's like, and it's not just from the Nepali side, you know, it's from the U.S. side too. I mean, I know there's a lot of checks and balances, but, you know, from an adopted parent's perspective, it's just insane. There's like 20 different papers and there's social work and there's like a list of like a hundred things that you have to accomplish. And it's just so much going on. So when you go through that process, yeah, you're feeling like it's definitely a nonlinear process and you just are trying to survive it kind of. And Nepal can be a place where it's very hard to figure out what those cultural things are. You wait in a line one day and the minister just says, no, we're not seeing people today. And the next time you get whisked and straight to the front of the line and the paper gets signed or you go to the police department and there's no furniture and there's, you know, rewriting the paper that talked about Arjun's origins and they're rewriting it because the original paper says he was a girl instead of a boy. And you're like, huh? Right. Yeah. So there's no rhyme or reason. So Eric, I live three years in Uganda. So when you talk, I just laugh because I totally get all of that, you know, rewriting a file and just kind of crossing out words and, and just trying to pass that paperwork through. Tell the TB story. Oh, the TB story was that uh, you have to go to a doctor, you have to get a TB test because a lot of the world has latent TB. And so we get him his test. And if it shows like a mark on his arm, that means that he might have a sign of having TB. But it doesn't really work like that because there's an inoculation. It doesn't really work, some people say. A lot of times it gives a false positive. So, yeah, he comes up with this positive, like he might have TB. And then the doctor just signs off anyway, like, oh, you know. And and it's because there's so many false positives. It's just like he's going through the steps. It wasn't like a real determination of anything. Right. So, yeah, and ultimately when we brought him home, he went on like seven months of uh, antibiotics, unfortunately, because, you know, just in case that there was any validity to it. Right. But I mean, that just makes so much sense to me. It's like there's no rhyme or reason why that paper was signed. You know, there wasn't like you corrected something the next day. It just happened to be they signed the paper that day. And so then you were free to go to the next step and kind of going through those hoops. It's very difficult. And reading your book, you have your wife's journal in here, just excerpts that she would say. And the things that she was going through with lice and sickness and, you know, really this child has not been with a family. So he is acting differently, sawing the table. I remember she was writing about how he took his knife and he's sawing at a table and just how he eats is different. He didn't speak English. And then also you have your daughter with you and her dream of, I'm going to have this brother 
it's totally flipped upside down. How was she doing? Well, at the time, she was so excited to have a little brother. And, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I mean, like, when he finally got home, she was so excited for him to be in her room. And, and then he comes in and just starts, like, destroying her piglet dolls, like just, you know, kung fu kicking and the stuffing's popping out of them. And her eyes are, like, bulging, like, what? This is the reality of this situation? I thought I was going to have this cute little brother that I, you know, like a little doll that I could, you know, hug and hold. Instead, I have this fury, this chaos coming in and just like a tornado destroying my world. (laughs) Yeah. How did she work through that? I mean, you're so right when you use the word chaos. That's what it is. It's chaos. Everything is upside down. How long until it started to calm down? Well, you know, when he came home, finally, after, you know, this extraordinary process. How long was she in the country? Because you had to leave. Well, I had to leave after 10 days because I had a no barriers expedition I was leading with some kids. And uh, you don't know, you can't like put your whole life on hold. So I didn't know even the date of how it all pan out. So anyway, Ellie stayed with Emma for like another month and, you know, heroically worked through the whole process. We luckily had this amazing friend of mine, Kami Sherpa, who had been the Sirdar head Sherpa on Everest. And so he was like, our ace in the hole, this amazing guy that just knew how to get, you know, through the civil war, through the protests on the streets and, uh, you know, get to where you needed to go. So he was like our ally through that whole process, but we finally did get him home. How long were Um, you actually in the country? The second time I was there for about 10 days and Ellie was there for about a month. A month with your daughter trying to bring him home. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. And as you said, you know, like papers would be coming from, some governmental agency in Vermont. And you're just picturing this vaulted, you know, dark Harry Potter tower that it's all happening in. And then the paper mysteriously doesn't arrive. And then you're right. Like and you're waiting and it's like, well, the whole thing's going to fall through and you're trying to track this thing and nobody can tell you, Oh, this is, I think it's lost. I think it's gone forever. This incredibly important file. And then uh, three days later, the embassy, they say, Oh, your file arrived. And you're just like, again, you're scratching your head. (laughs) And you're thankful too, though. Right. Like, okay, okay, let's just go to the next hoop. In the book, I like the amazing race. Yes. You're going through the amazing race, but instead of the prize being like a million bucks, the prize is, you know, you get your kid. (laughs) Yes, and then the real journey starts, right? And then the real journey starts. You thought that you'd gone through the hard part, and then the real wild stuff starts, the meaningful stuff, because... You're like a lion just jumping through, you know, a hoop on fire, you know, getting him home. But the real meaningful stuff happens when he comes home. Let's talk about that. Well, so when he comes home, at first I thought it was a wild thing because we have this globe. It's a talking globe. And uh, Ellen was, they were looking at a book of planets. And so he pointed to one of the planets or maybe Earth that Ellie was showing him. Like, this is where we live. And he's like, America? And Ellie's like, you know, yeah, this is America, like on this planet Earth. And then he like pointed to another planet. He was like, Nepal. So he thought like he had like traveled through space or something. Wow. And it's true. He might as well have done that. You know right. what I mean? The culture shock must have been so massive. And even the day before we left Nepal, you know, and he'd never cried, but he just had this deep crying, soulful sort of wailing on the bed. And so even at his little five-year-old, stage, you know, he just knew that 
he was leaving some things that were important to him and he was moving into something that was going to be a big, you know, kind of his own Everest. So even at his age, you know, like he, he felt that it was a soulful mm-hmm. whale. We didn't know, you know, like what is at the heart of that? There's something deep and profound there, but we don't know what it is yet. But yeah, so he gets home and Ellie actually wound up saying, no, we're on the same planet. Like as Nepal and showed him our talking globe and showed him the route, like that he flew over the Pacific ocean. And then she, uh, wrote a Nepal on a, on a balloon with helium and they floated it off into the sky. And she said, Hey, that balloon, maybe it'll go back to Nepal just to kind of connect him with uh, where he right. come from. In the meantime, Emma was like, you know what else is on this planet? My piglet dolls that you chopped in half. Yeah. And you know, she was seven at the time. Right. And I remember now, you know, at some point, like after so much chaos, after this rude adjustment of being a, a kid who had never had any siblings, she comes to me and, you know, she, she got caught lying about something. She had taken something of Arjun. And I said, Emily, that's not like you. Like, what's going on? And she said, Dad, like, I just want to go back to the time, like, before he was here. <laughs> like, you know, like, could we go back to, you know, like, before we had him? And I just laughed. I was like, no, there's, there's no return policy, Emma. Like, this is it. This mm-hmm. is life. This is our life. This is your brother. And you know, this is it. Like, and, and I love you. And so, yeah, they developed like a little sibling rivalry because AJ, I call him AJ, he was so sort of hyper-focused on making sure that he wasn't like the forsaken one. So like when Ellen would pour milk, he would look very carefully, like, did Emma get more milk than I did? Like, maybe she got like a millimeter more milk than I did. And that must mean that they love her more than me. Mm. So it's a natural thing that happens here. And so eventually Ellen just started saying, okay, like, here are the milk. You decide, Arjun, which one you want. <laughs> but anyway, that's a natural thing that happens. And, you know, we caught him one time down in his shower. We have, like, you know, where the showers are sort of connected, like the pipes are connected. So Emma was screaming, like, ow, that water in my shower is getting really hot and really cold. And he was in his bathroom turning the faucet left and right and left and right, <sighs> knowing that like he was going to alternatively burn her and pull it her. off. Right. And he was like a little mad scientist, just like in there with a big smile on his face. Like, and it's kind of like what any little brother would do to his big sister. But you know, we paid attention to that kind of thing. Right. So when did things calm down? When was that moment when you felt like we're all coming together as a family? Oh, I mean, we're still waiting actually. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But it's serious too, because it's a continual process, right. it's a lifelong process. Right. But Arjun is 15 now and Emma's 17. So um, I think it all started coming together. You know, just the bonding that we really focused on as a family, trying to, as I said, knit our experiences together. You know, we'd go on these wonderful rafting trips and I'd be learning to kayak in the river and the rest of the family would be on rafts and inflatable kayaks or what they call duckies. Or one time we rented an RV and did the typical American vacation Ellie driving our 36-foot RV to Yellowstone Park and experiencing wonderful things together as a family and just telling stories and sitting around the campfire. You know, I think it's that magic that you physically create as a family, that you mentally create as a family, that starts to slowly bind things together. You know, he got in trouble on one of those camping trips because he was just being pushy and cutting in line and with this game we were playing. And I went and talked to him down at the at river's edge 
And he's like, you know, Dad, I don't look like you. And I think you love Emma more than me. And that was really hard to mm-hmm. hear, you know what I mean? But it's right. like, again, it's natural. You know what I mean? It's, the only thing I could respond was like, hey, dude, like, you don't get it. If we were crossing a highway and, you know, there's a truck coming, I would push you out of the way and get squashed myself. And he liked that. He kind of liked that. He was mm-hmm. like, really? Like, that's kind of cool. Like, you know, you would die for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's those moments where you really connect when they show their vulnerability in their struggle. Because adoption, like you said, it's a never-ending journey. And you say yes to it and you bring children into your home. It's Everybody's on that journey. And it's good to be honest. And it's good to have those weak moments because then we can step in and really parent. And I think in our family, that's when things are most life-changing is when my kids are asking me questions that are really hard and really painful. And I get to show them love in a tangible way. And like you said, using an example of risking your life for your child, giving your life for your child. I have to ask you, what is your one piece of advice for adoptive parents? My advice is that I think a lot about this idea of what a no barriers life means. You know, so life is like an awesome journey. You have to decide that it's a good journey, even though there's chaos and challenge and tragedy, you know, along the way, but it is a good journey. And so that process is a messy process. It isn't meant to be neat and orderly. If you're looking for a neat, orderly life, then I don't think I'm speaking to that crowd here. You know, it's supposed to be joyful and chaotic and, and fulfilling. And so I would recommend that people do this, you know, like, go through what this journey means. And it's setting yourself up a little bit for a harder life, but a very fulfilling life. You know, as I wrote in the book, it's not just the physical things like climbing mountains. As I said, that's kind of sometimes the easy part. It's the very complicated process of trying to navigate with your family, trying to navigate towards love and fulfillment with your kids. I know this sounds a little crass, but I I wrote it in the book because that's just my personality and it. I was having fun with it, but it was like, hey, like we had a biological girl. We had her the old fashioned way. Why not bring somebody into your family who already exists in the world? You know, like what a win win in a classic business sense, right? Like you don't have to always have kids. You know, you can bring an amazing kid into your family that you're not doing like charity work. That kid brings you gifts and brings you joy and brings you happiness. It's a gift to you. Mm. It definitely is worth it. Eric, you have been a gift to the show. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. How can people get a hold of you and your book? Well, they can learn about No Barriers at nobarriersusa.org. And the book can be bought at Amazon and all the online companies and your local bookstore. And I love to hear people's feedback. Like it would really make my day if I heard from adoptive families, whether they're in the process or whether they've brought a child home. And I'd love to hear people connect to the stories in the book because that's the fun part of writing a book and being an author is connecting and sharing those experiences. Again, the book is No Barriers. Eric, thank you for being here. Don't forget to like Adoption Now on Facebook. And remember, all of our podcasts are available on iTunes. Thanks for tuning in to Adoption Now. I'm your host, April Fallon. See you next week.